do you feel when your body and mind are in a state of worry? Do you find it tough to let go of those nagging, hanging thoughts that keep you away from enjoying life right now, right this moment? Mm. If your answer is a resounding yes, or even a sometimes, do we have a valuable and revealing episode for you? Hello and welcome to Boom Goddess Radio. This is Bibi Peters, and today we asked our own Dr. Andrea Gould Marks to reflect on the hundreds of patients she has counseled in her 40 plus year career as a psychologist to help us better understand the worrying process, like how to best reduce its impact on our daily lives and how to let go of that which no longer serves us. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Andrea. Welcome. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about this really gnarly issue for most people. It is gnarly. So exactly. So tell us, what exactly is worrying? Is it anxiety about a potential problem? Is it unease because our mind is dwelling on some difficulty that we can't conquer? Is it a feeling of being out of control? What is it? Baby, I'd have to say it's all of the above. It begins with a problem confronting us or a situation confronting us and then it cycles around repetitively until we're in the thick of it. Actually, it, when we break it down, worrying is a conditioned habit that we unwittingly design in order to reduce anxiety. It has its roots in the idea, read superstition, that thinking can manage anxiety. We can't help it. And while we're thinking, and it's a fine starting point, it's the repetitive, ruminative, worried thoughts that are not a functional way to reduce anxiety, actually. And that ultimately is the goal. The goal is to reduce our discomfort. Operationally, we want to solve the problem or eliminate the situation altogether. The only thing repetitive rumination or deep, continuous thoughts about a troubling situation does is wear us down and invites depression. And even. it seems that it sort of um, it takes away from the pleasure that we can experience in our daily life, in the moment. It's sort of like it holds us prisoner in those thoughts. It does. It does diminish the quality of our life. It does diminish our sense of well-being, you know. We've unwittingly trained our brains to believe that overthinking will lead to resolution. <laughs> but mostly, it rarely does that, or at least obsessive thinking, unless we know how to work with our thoughts and our other abilities to solve a dilemma. I love that idea of working with our thoughts. At some point in time, we probably may think that it's kind of an impossible thing to do. So what's uh, the type of action or direction that we can take to unencumber ourselves, to free ourselves from the worries that we may be experiencing? You know, I think, Bibi, the first thing we really need to understand is a little bit more about the nature of the mind itself, all of our minds, because oh. we're not that dissimilar in terms of the process that our mind goes through. I mean, mostly the chatter goes on most of the time in our lives, and we either tune into what's going on or we let it go or we distract ourselves. So let's slow down the process. There are actually steps, 
And after finally recognizing that we're in an unproductive loop, it becomes incumbent upon us to change strategies, like you say, manage. I'm always wanting to go back to the fundamentals, you know, like worrying. What is it really? What triggers it in us? How is it that some days we're worried less and other days we're worried more? How does it feel? What about it is frustrating to us and burdensome? What are the ill effects, you know, on our mind and on our body, both short and long term? You know, chronic worrying is actually a conditioned response to anxiety. So we would feel anxious and then we would try to think our way out of that anxiety and that's fine if we can come up with a solution but what actually happens is that when we experience any anxiety our response to that becomes habitual and over time becomes identified with our personality and hence we might define ourselves or call ourselves as a worrier. Like, do you, sometimes I see people <clears throat> that their face shows that they worry a lot. Yeah, you can see the, the ridges yes. in, in between the eyebrows or maybe a pursing of the lips. Right, or like a serious look on their face, you know, where they're concerned or consumed even with some thoughts. Yeah, like their mouth, the edges of the mouth turns down. And it's so interesting because... I can see if somebody is thinking, it's almost like the thought is bouncing around from the two different hemispheres mm. of the brain, going back and forth, back and forth, back and, back and forth, without a resolution. So you were talking about deconstructing the parts of the process so we can learn alternative behaviors while deconstructing the process. Well, that to me, sounds a lot like multitasking, you know, and to some people, multitasking is a little uh, scary. So deconstruct the process while learning alternative behaviors. Yikes. That sounds like almost an impossible task. Well, actually, the focus of psychotherapy for the past, I would say, maybe 25 years is on mindfulness. And so let's start mm. with mindfulness. Full awareness. Let's all relax, even as we're listening. Let's do that. Right? Let's, Let's be aware that. of our own thoughts, not jumping ahead to looking for solutions. But let's let's start with talking about the thoughts, the the steps. Excuse me. So, okay, mindful awareness. First, it's important to train ourselves to identify when we are worrying. So worrying can be like software running in the background of your computer, right? It drains the energy. It drains the CPUs. It actually interferes with the functionality for other tasks. I'm sure we've all noticed that. You know, as somebody is talking to us and we're busy worrying or, or we're trying to complete something and we're distracted by our own what's going on in our heads. And that energy is depleting. So the first step is really to catch yourself worrying. And that just and by that do you mean just to make a mental note to yourself like this feels like worrying to me or I am worrying at this time. Right. Is that what it is? Right. As soon as you well first of all it, it we have to begin with being able to notice our, th our, our thoughts. So much of our thinking goes zooming by without mm -hmm. us even knowing that we're thinking. I mean, think about like cars moving quickly on the freeway 
that's a lot. That I think that's a fairly good metaphor. I mean, there's just it doesn't stop. I remember when I was a child, I would say to my dad, if we were in a traffic jam, Dad, why can't the first car just go faster? And he would say, there's no first car. And I pondered that. I'm, you know, like four or five years old. I mean, how could there not be right, right a first car? So sometimes we can't even identify when the beginning happens, but we don't have to. If we go to mindfulness meditation, we just are sitting quietly, and our job is to notice our thoughts. An easier way of thinking about it is our job is first to notice whatever is influencing us. So we could be meditating in a room and hear noise in an adjoining room, and we can first notice noise. Or the window can be open and we can notice a beautiful fragrance of spring wafting in. Or we can have a fan on and we can have the sensation of something that's blowing the, the hairs on our head. Those things are as important to notice, as we talked about savoring in previous, <laughs> in previous episodes, as noticing the thoughts. When I teach meditation, mindfulness, I often start with the sensations because it's a little easier to notice. Because like we said, you know, the thoughts are running in the background. They're nonstop. So we can begin to train ourselves to notice, for instance, when a new thought enters our mind. And then we can say thinking, or we can say worrying, or we can say solving trying to solve a problem. We can label it regretting or we can label it anticipating. The trick is to note it and call it something. Now, I'm talking about meditation practice as a practical way of beginning this process to stop worrying or to it, diminish it. And it sounds to me like it doesn't have to be um, a 20-minute or half-an-hour thing to meditate and experience that, right? We can be a minute or two just quiet. quiet. We could just be quiet. Right. The thing about meditation practice is that we get really good at identifying our thoughts. So that's why we practice. And that's why usually when we're learning 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. But I'm willing after all these years to say just a couple of minutes, a couple of times a day, almost like a check-in, mm. that we can just notice what we're thinking. Because a lot of um, worrying just goes on like under the surface. So we want to bring it to the surface so that we can recognize it, what it is. So catching ourselves worrying and detail how frequently that happens, you know, is, is a way to learn to use mindfulness techniques to name the worrying, focus back on the breathing, because that's what we do. As soon as we notice the worry or the worried thought, we bring our attention back to the breath and then so on and on. So it doesn't matter if the same thought is reoccurring. We name it again, and then we notice that it's worrying because it's not a productive thought. It's not solving a problem. But what about worrying about something big, something acute, like let's say going for an appointment a long way away and the weather forecast is like downright bleak? Or how are you going to get 
from point A to point B in your process? Or what will you say to this one person uh, that you're kind of uncomfortable with about a certain problem that you and they may be experiencing? Or just worrying about putting things off because you're not wanting to deal with it, kind of a procrastinating thing. What about those kind of worries? You know, those kind of worries that you're mentioning now sort of fall into the category of problem solving, mm. right? And if we think, if we if we recognize that when we're worried about something, when we have repetitive, ruminative thinking that isn't productive, in other words, it doesn't come up with a solution, it just loops around and loops around. It's funny. I just want to say when you were saying um, loops that I just began to see like a little chain of how we used to make those in like elementary school out of paper and you get uh, one piece attached to the other. That's what I just... um, well, that, that's a good that's a good image to describe it. And it's a hopeful image because I remember making those two and you can tear off the bottom one, you know. <laughs> like we used to do that when we were like waiting for a vacation. You know, it's like how many of those loops are in there. But it is a looping thing. And if we're unsuccessful, once, once we solve something, the worrying would stop. So if we see it as a problem-solving challenge, then we can kind of reframe it and ask ourselves more productive questions like, what is it that I need to do? What is it that I need to learn? Who is it that I might need to call in order to solve this problem? Wow. So it's a problem isn't always ours to solve, right? Well, there's that distinction, right? That's a really good point. Very often, okay, this is very parental. Very often we are, as parents, worrying about another child, and it isn't really ours to solve. This is something that a child has to solve or our partner has to solve. I love that you talk about parents. My mother... uh, though she has passed now, was such a worrier. Since I was an only child, she worried endlessly about my welfare until her dying days. And that's why I've been teaching myself to develop a different mindset, which has thankfully led me to understand that worrying doesn't serve me. I love it. I love it. That's a great recognition. Everyone, we're talking with Dr. Andrea Gould Marks, one of our boom goddesses, about her experience with hundreds of patients during her career, and also um, specifically about the idea of worrying and letting go. In this first part, we're talking about worrying, and I was just mentioning how my mom used to worry endlessly. Even when I was 50 and older, she was worry about wearing uh, the right clothes for warmth and not driving too fast and me uh, leaving the house and uh, just a worry award. So um, I wanted to talk to Dr. Andrea about that idea and how we can let those deep worries 
uh, how we can let them go. And I think, um, Dr. Andrew, I think you call that a philosophical or psycho-spiritual outlook. Well, certainly having a psychological or, I'm sorry, a psycho-spiritual outlook or philosophical outlook would be really helpful. The question is, when you're talking about a parent who isn't necessarily educated, they're going to default to the original state of parenthood, which is being concerned about the baby chick, is being concerned about the young child. And for some people, that never goes away because they don't have the insight and here's the, here's the phrase that we often use, whose problem is it? In other words, if my daughter's going to be cold when she's walking home from school because she forgot her sweater or she insisted on wearing perhaps something inappropriate, it's really her problem. Right. And a parent might say, well, if she gets sick, then it's my problem. Then I have to take off from work or whatever. But in your mom's case, that wasn't the case. It was more of a habit. Right. It was acculturation. Talking about an educational orientation toward this, we learn or we teach ultimately the question of whose problem is it, like we were saying. And so how do we determine whose problem it is? You know, and that in itself, once as a parent, perhaps, you recognize that it's your child's problem, or once as a partner, you recognize that what's going on with your spouse or your partner is not your problem, but you're worrying about their ability to solve, then that would implicate a whole different way of going about dealing with that. And I I can see that uh, as far as are the worries my worries or should these worries be someone else's to kind of separate ourselves from that is in itself a freeing action. Absolutely. And, you know, lots of times when I'm working with parents, that's like one of the first insights that really relieves them. And the other question is, is this something that my thinking is able to solve or is this, is this something else? Like, right these days, let's just talk about the coronavirus. Right. right? Such a critical, important thought. Right. So there are people, and I can tell you, <laughs> I will not name names, who worry about it constantly. And so the question is, is this something that I have any control over? Right? right? There is that um, famous statement through AA is grant me the serenity to know the difference between what I can address really and what I'm powerless to do anything about. Right. And one way that I can think of uh, reducing our worries around something like the coronavirus is to eliminate the bombardment of media and newspapers and TV that um, honestly uh, reported minute to minute, right, all the time. So if we don't put ourselves in that situation, we already let ourselves feel better. Yeah, and that's actually something that a lot of people have discovered. You know, when you talk to people who are worried about the future, what, whichever way it goes, to be able to stop the bombardment, we do have control over that. 
you know. We have to believe that if something really important is happening, we're going to find out one way or the other, right? We're not going to be left in the dark. And each one of us as individuals, or most of us as individuals, don't necessarily have the power beyond being really diligent about washing our hands the way the World Health Organization says to do it, which is like a 40-second process. We have control over that. That's about, that's about it. We can stay home. We can resist being in crowds. We can resist touching banisters and other kinds of public places. But that's really basically all we can do. Yes. So thinking about other worries that people have um, and how to deal with it, what other ways, what if when all else fails um, and we can't, Um, separate from the worries that are occupying us, what else can we do? I'm glad you asked about that because one of the things that we can do is distract ourselves, you know. I mean, that's that's one of the redirections that we can take, but only after we satisfy ourselves because basically we believe that thinking about something It's a belief that's ingrained. It's a habit, remember, that thinking about something is going to solve it. Right. So once we can identify that thinking has become unproductive, then we have to go in a different direction. And either we're going to ask for help or we're going to research something or we're going to take an action. So once we determine that we can take an action, that taking action definitely reduces anxiety. So that's one really important thing to remember. If that, if all else fails, as you say, then we really need to redirect our thinking. So where can we put our thinking? What could we do? Right. What can we do? We can take a walk. We can read a book. We can call a friend. (laughs) Any of those things. We could do something artistic. We can take our camera for a walk. We can immerse ourselves. It's so easy to take pictures of interesting things. We can see a movie. We can make art. We can put ourselves in a different mindset, not something that we just necessarily create from sitting there, although those of us who are practiced at doing it can basically say, take your mind out of this box and put your mind somewhere else. Right? Look up a recipe for making a, an innovative dinner, right? See what's playing in the cinemas. I mean, we can command ourselves to do those kinds of things, but I call it distraction is like a rare spice. You want to use it lightly and rarely, but a good safety net when there's nothing else we can do. But I want to ask you um, something that you mentioned in the past how our brain works from when it is in the worry mode. Uh, we talk, You talked a little bit about brain scans at one time. Um, how does it appear? What happens in the brain? When right. this- These are PET scans. Yes. And, and one pet thing, meaning um, they are, um, hmm, all of a sudden the name eludes me, but it is like an X-ray or a sonogram of the brain activity. And what happens in that, in that case is that we can see now 
graphically what the brain is doing. It's just an amazing thing. What the brain is doing when certain of our thoughts are going on. So worrying, for instance, has a characteristic pattern, and they call that the default mode network. And what happens mm. is the, um, the energy in the brain, the neuronal activity in the brain, neuronal, is going back and forth between two lo two areas of the brain. One is the frontal lobe and the other and the other is the deep emotional centers of the brain, the amygdala, for instance, right? Sounds so, very medical to it's, me. It's just it's, so you know. It's kind of a medical thing. You know, it, the brain is a medical phenomenon, right? Oh, it's become that, right? So when we're worrying, there's nothing going on except to back and forth, back and forth that we can actually see, and they call that the default mode network. But its function is to keep homeostasis or stable equilibrium in your body, sometimes resulting in feeling stuck. So ultimately, it does that. It doesn't necessarily, in the case of rumination, it doesn't necessarily help us. It winds up the homeostasis, keeping ourselves in a safe place, winds up with us feeling stuck. So... Um, with our brain activated in many areas, then we're able to shake loose some of the alternative perspectives and begin to feel unstuck. Is that what I hear you say? Yes, I think that's very accurate. And I think it's important for all of us to keep in our mental first aid kit new ways of doing life through letting go, taking a whole new path, but we have to learn how to do that. We have to be, most importantly, willing to separate from our habits. And sometimes that's a, a very difficult thing to do. As a matter of fact, probably breaking habits is maybe one of the most um, most impossible feeling challenges that we have. I mean, just look at how it feels to be wanting to break a habit of overeating or wanting to break a habit of not paying attention or any habit that you can think of that gives us the most trouble as human beings. And maybe, just maybe, we can spend another podcast time or another episode time thinking about that about letting go what i love what i can what i have gleaned from our discussion is that uncovering new ways of doing life i love this phrase of new ways of doing life because that already to me reminds me of not being stuck yeah right and so uh so and uh uncovering those new ways and taking a whole new path can help us better work through the worrying process yes and like anything it's about change and it's about modifying our behavior and then giving ourselves a chance to learn from what we did so that we can then have the experience of having succeeded and that is the beginning hint and then we can talk about baby steps and all that let's have another conversation about that let's do that let's do that just about the idea of letting go and how we can sort of um clean ourselves of those ideas and the worrying mindset. I agree. Let's, let's do it next time. 
You can find these steps and many others in the Dr. Andrea Formula for Letting Go on our website at boomgoddess.com. Letting go makes room, forms alternative neuronal paths, and leads us into new perspectives, ways, and comfort zones. Thank you for listening. And now, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know your challenges and your tried-and-true solutions or your questions. So please write to us at boomgoddess.com and leave us a comment. Your ideas and participation power our stories. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.